0: if you would take your bibles with me and turn to the gospel of john in chapter 3 gospel of john chapter 3 we're going to pick up in verse 22 I think the, the title of the message today is, is pretty obvious. What we're going to focus our attention on, we're going to highlight in, in the text. I don't think we're going to have to be real observant uh, to see the, the humility of John running through this text. Uh, there's a lot of other things here, um, and I'll admit that as we're walking through this, it's going to be a, a temptation to, to get off. Um, But we're going to do our our best to to highlight some of those other things as we come back to it. But for now, as we walk through it, we want to notice uh, John's humility. So if you would stand with me as we honor the, the reading of Scripture. After this... Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with him and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Aeneon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would guide us as we look at your word We pray that you would lead us to truth that that your spirit would work such a way in this room that we would pass over error but what is true we would grasp and comprehend so that Jesus might be exalted that we might walk out of here today proclaiming the the glory and the excellencies of Christ Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, if we just start with the, the topic of humility here and try to take and extract principles that we can apply to our life, in this text, we actually run the risk of cultivating people who will struggle with their pride all the more under the guise of trying to be humble. I'm not sure that that makes sense, but it is true. Bear with me for a moment. For instance, say you want to become more humble. So you go to a seminar on humility. And In the seminar, the speaker gives several examples of humility, say, even biblical examples. And then he he takes and extracts practical principles on how you can make yourself more like that, how you can make yourself more humble by applying these certain principles to your life. Things that you can do to make you more like the people that you read about, the stories that you heard. It sounds good and well on the surface because, after all, humility is a Christian virtue that we should all long for and desire. After all, that's why you went to the seminar in the first place. Now, surely, in that room of seminar attendance, there will be one or, say, a small group that will take this material far more seriously than everybody else in the seminar. They will strive and work hard to apply these principles the best way they know how. They will work dreadfully hard at being humble so that their lives might look like the examples mentioned in the seminar. And the question is, is that result... Is that true humility? Is that how the people in the examples that were given in the seminar obtained humility? By going to a seminar, looking at examples, and then cultivating a path of principles to get there. Is that what they did? I think not. And the reason for this is that humility is not a product of one's direct working for it. In other words, humility cannot be the product born out of arrogance or pride. The more I achieve, the more I'm humble. The more I apply these principles, the better I can be at being humble. It doesn't work that way, right? Something about that just doesn't seem right. Arthur W. Pink said it this way, he said, humility is not the product of direct cultivation. Rather, it is a byproduct. The more I try to be humble, the less I shall attain unto humility. But if I'm truly occupied with the one, capital O, one, who was meek and lowly in heart, If I'm constantly beholding his glory in the mirror of God's word, then I shall be changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, Pink there is making a connection with humility and 2 Corinthians 3.18, and his point is very simple. You don't become more humble by pursuing humility directly. Humility is a byproduct of our preoccupation with Christ. The more occupied we are with Christ, the more we will become like him. And I think this is simply profound. So I guess here at the onset of, our, of the message, I, want, I don't want you to hear in this message, here are ways how you become more humble. I want us to look at John's humility and how it came to him, how he obtained it, his preoccupation with Christ in several ways. So my my task is not to show you how to be more humble, but to show you John's preoccupation with Christ so that you would occupy your heart and mind with the beauty and greatness that is knowing Christ and ultimately the byproduct there will be true humility. I'll make one more comment before we really get into the text, and that is that I'm well aware that, that humility is a virtue. It's a Christian virtue, and we all universally, I would say, believers would say that we need more of it. Humility is like John Selden said in the 17th century, humility is a virtue that all men preach, none practice, and yet everybody is content to hear. Obviously, that's a gross exaggeration, but he makes a point, and that is that often humility is preached about, but not practiced. I mean, we could get into to reasons for that all day, but we know we need to hear it. We're content to hear it because we know we need more of it. We will actively tell people that humility is important, but when it comes to practice, there seems to be a great disconnect. So when I stand up here this morning and say we're going to talk about humility today, that subject is going to be met with a universal recognition of our need to be more humble. Right? Isn't that if we if we want to be humble, we're going to say, well, I need to be more humble. Yet, the realization that not one of us has this squared away and we know it is there before us all as well, right? And this is why I think this is a a good thing to say at the onset. This is why we we must, in our view, see humility as a, a byproduct of our dependence and devotion to Christ because we realize that it is in Christ that we see true and perfect humility. And when we see Jesus we recognize how we fall short. And if perfect humility, if Jesus is the standard, then it doesn't matter how many seminars that we will go to, our humility will never measure up. And therefore, our only hope for acceptance by Christ is in what he has done for us. That he lived in perfect humility for us. In other words, Jesus lived perfectly and then dying to bear the weight of our selfish pride, which is the opposite of humility, right? Our lack of perfect humility was laid on him. All of our prideful actions, no matter how they might be perceived, right? right? Because our actions that we do, others may or may not be perceived as, as selfless. It's putting others first. We might do things that are perceived that way, but in our hearts we know that our motive was the recognition of our apparent humility, which isn't humility, even if everybody thinks it is. It's pride. And it, too, is a sin for which Christ died. So if you want to be truly humble, And obviously, I'm not saying you should look at me. I'm constantly disappointed with my own heart in this area. If you want to be truly humble, you look to the person of Jesus and specifically how he bore the wrath of God for you in this area. Our faith has found a resting place. Not in principles that you can apply to your life. To be more humble. You're never going to be humble enough. The only result is to trust in Christ and what he has done for you. That he bore all of your pride. By the way, a sin that is, virtually all other sin is traced back to. Now I want to make the the case that this is exactly what John the Baptist was looking for in Christ, his statement about Christ. When we first see John the Baptist, he says, look, look, there's Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It's a very telling statement. The Messiah for John wasn't somebody that was going to come and be some great teacher of morality and give him these principles that he could become more, that he could become better. A mere example to follow although Jesus was that, the Messiah's primary purpose wasn't to deliver them from the oppression of Rome. John seemed to recognize this. We don't know exactly what John thought here, but we do know that when he saw Jesus, he saw the the primary purpose of the Messiah, and that was one who would deal with the primary problem that plagued humanity, and that is sin. Therefore, John looked to Jesus. Behold, the Lamb It takes away the sin of the world. Looking at our text here in John 3, we noticed that John the Baptist gained a a lot of popularity. And this was because of his preaching. Luke tells us that there were multitudes that came to hear him. Matthew says that people from all over Jerusalem and Judea and the whole region came to hear him preach and be baptized him. And this included the religious elites, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, as well as some others that you might not expect, such as tax collectors and soldiers. The rich and the poor, people from all socioeconomic backgrounds, came to hear John and be baptized him. There was a lot of talk about who John was. He was hailed as a reincarnation of Elijah or another prophet. We know that John's popularity was even noticed by Herod, the, the Tetrarch of Galilee. He, was, he called for, for John and had John preach to him. And Mar, In Mark, we learn that in the start, Herod was, was glad to hear John, and he even did many good things as a result of John's preaching. In Mark 6.20, we read that Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Isn't that fascinating that his preaching had that effect on Herod? But it wasn't only that. We know that that gladness, that jubilee lasted a short time. His fascination with John was over as fast as it started. It lasted only as if John preached in general terms. That's how it is, by the way, usually. It isn't easy to hear somebody that seems to be speaking right at you, even when they have tremendous biblical support. In this case, Herod was living with his brother Philip's wife. And when he was called on that, his enthusiasm for John halted. In fact, when John said these things, it angered his brother's wife, Herodus, and ultimately John was arrested and killed because he told Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Of course, at the time we're reading in chapter 3, In John's gospel, John hadn't been imprisoned yet. He was still in the middle of his ministry. He was still very popular, but we notice something else here too, and that is that the popularity of Jesus was was growing at, uh, well, an alarming rate. Many who had started following John turned and followed Jesus. Some of those, John, right, even pointed to Jesus. We've seen that already. And some of John's disciples, though, were a little bit worried about this. They didn't know what to think about it. Because even, even Herod, as we saw, saw John as a, a holy man from God. It was, he was quite taken with him. It, it makes sense that John's disciples would be worried if another over here was claiming to be from God and that people were following him. They didn't want their teacher to lose prestige. In our passage, there was a conversation about the Jewish rites of purification, which makes sense in the context of all of these baptisms that were happening. It was during this conversation that somebody expressed concern about Jesus and the people that were going to him. In verse 26, we read, And they came to John, and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. It's interesting that John had already spoke of Jesus. This was known. But still there was a concern that John wouldn't have the same recognition or fame as if people were going to Jesus. We get it, I think, that John's followers loved him. He was a spiritual mentor to them. They didn't want to see him lose favor in the sight of the people. He was helping uh, many people. It was a, a love and concern for, for John, I think, that these people came to John. John, your star is sinking. What are we going to do? It was, it was that kind of thing. But there's something else going on here. There was, I think, a concern that people wouldn't be helped. They wouldn't be helped by, by John if they went somewhere else. All that John was doing in their lives would be gone. And I think that concern was, was genuine. People cared about the, the ministry that John had. But even with that genuine nature of concern... John could have felt sorry for himself, but that's not what happened at all. In fact, John didn't just sadly say, well, it's time for me to decrease and him to increase, so I must now take my bow and walk off stage and then walk off with his head hanging low. Well, guess my ministry's over. That's not what happened. I think John's words here are so important as he responds to these people that that came to him with this concern. How John responds really says something about how John sees himself and how John sees Jesus. And in the light of his understanding of these things, we really see John's humility. And that's what we want to explore here for the next few minutes. Let's start in verse 27. Look at John's words here. John answered, "A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven." It's an interesting thing for John to say. It was an acknowledgement about himself and his own ministry. He's not, or he's going to to follow up in the next verse by reminding uh, these disciples that. What he said before, that he wasn't the Christ, he was just sent before him. In other words, the ministry that John has is what God allowed him to have, and he should not want more than that. He should only want what God has given him. This was a, a tremendous awareness of God's sovereignty, and it was one thing that really kept John humble. Notice, this isn't a, a do this and be humble thing. The humility here was a, a byproduct of an acute awareness of God's sovereign control in his life. Let me see if I can set this up a little bit. This is a, a little bit technical, but I, but I think it's important, and I think you'll follow with me here. And you'll see that the point We all know that God is sovereign. Everyone, every Christian would say that. I think there are a lot of Christians, though, that speak of God's sovereignty, and they say they they believe it, but really they believe it only when it's convenient for them. What I'm saying is that for all intents and purposes, people want to run their own lives, and they want control. We see this uh, all over the place. And we see it in the church. We see it in the doctrine of salvation all over. I would say that there's known what is called the the doctrines of grace. And these doctrines are extremely important. That salvation is by the, the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But yet there are those who would say, well, yes, salvation is by the grace of God, but God grants this grace to everyone. And therefore, in the end, it's up to the individual to choose what they will do with it. Will they accept it or not? Well, the problem is, is that isn't grace. It it puts you in control. And actually, in this scenario, who is the sovereign one? The sovereign one is you. And it it flies in the face of, of any meaningful doctrine of grace or any meaningful doctrine of God's sovereignty. You'll hear things like, well, yes, God is sovereignty, sovereign, but he chooses to limit his sovereignty. That is ridiculous. It's like saying that God chooses in a moment to stop being God. God cannot suspend his perfections. If he did, he would not be God. The, the biblical and orthodox understanding of God is, called, is what's called God the simplicity of God. In other words, God isn't a complex being in that he is a sum total of parts. So he cannot be God and set aside his holiness, for instance. A God that sets aside his holiness isn't God. I don't want to get too far off here, but God is sovereign when it comes to salvation and to grapple with grace that this God in his love for us would take undeserving rebels and extend his unmerited favor toward them, allowing them to see and experience the truth and the beauty of the gospel. To contemplate that is extremely humbling. To take away from God's sovereignty here and to say that you contributed to your salvation in some, even some minuscule way, not only gives you cause to boast, but it does not produce humility. Just think about John the Baptist here. He understands that God is sovereign. But it isn't just words. It's actually applied to the specific situation in his ministry. Of course, he understood the the prophetic part of this. He understood his role, and that was to to point to Christ. That God had a a sovereign plan here, and he was happy to play his part and to trust God with the results. The doctrine of God's sovereignty then leads to humility. Secondly, and we have mentioned this a little getting here, but John was very self-aware. This comes out in the next statement in verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John understood himself and he understood his ministry. He understood that his ministry was fruitful because it had been given to him from heaven. He also understood that his ministry was ultimately to point his followers to that person that would come after him, the Messiah, who he identified himself as being Jesus. In other words, John recognized himself, at least on one level, to be nothing. Isn't that something? John has all of these followers coming after him. I mean, people from the... The whole countryside, Jerusalem, Judea, the, the country, all these people, all walks of life are coming to him to, to be baptized, to be ready for the Messiah. And John is essentially saying, I, I'm not even worthy to, to tie a sandal. I, I'm nothing. And I know you might be saying, well, nothing. That's maybe an overstatement. But understand what I mean here when I say that. I, I'm not saying that you're not special or you're not created in the image of God when you see yourself as, as nothing, right? You are special. You are created in God's image. What I'm saying here is a, is, is a reference to Jesus' words in John 15, where he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You, you're, apart from me, you can, you can do nothing. Of course... That's in the context of the branch abiding in the vine that is bearing fruit, right? So the the application is simple. The branch can do nothing in regards to bearing fruit if it's not connected to the vine, if it's not connected to the source. John understood this. He understood what Paul taught in the 12th chapter of Romans about humility. And that was not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. You know what it is to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think? It's thinking that you can bear fruit on your own apart from, the, apart from the vine. That you don't have to depend on the vine. That you can do this without Christ. When Jesus himself says, apart from me, you can do nothing. John recognized that. John was very self-aware. He understood himself to be nothing without the vine. That, in fact, his purpose was to point others to the vine. Now, we get to the next verse, John uh, 3.29. Notice how John's eyes here are fixated on Christ. That the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And I think there's a, a lot here, but so, to suffice it to say that John sees himself as the friend of the bridegroom. And he wanted people to understand that if this situation was compared to a wedding, that it wasn't his wedding, that he was there, he was standing there as a, a friend of the bridegroom. And he stood and listened and greatly rejoiced in all of what was happening. When the attention wasn't on him, but it was on what was going on over here. It was on the wedding in the bridegroom. John wasn't the one standing there wishing it was him. He didn't wish, this is my wedding. He didn't describe himself as a mere guest to the wedding, a witness, but a friend to the bridegroom, longing to hear his voice as an opportunity to greatly rejoice in what was happening. I think there's something here that we need to make clear, and it has to do with listening to the voice of of Christ. Certainly when John listened to, to Christ, he understood there as Christ, he stood there as Christ taught. He took it in and he rejoiced in all of that. We could say that his eyes were fixed on Christ as the people at the wedding would be fixated on those that were getting married. This is one of those instances that I said we could get off track a little bit. I'm trying not to do that, but we we hear today about the the importance of of listening to to God. Usually we hear this in the context of a a conversation about prayer. Prayer is is talking to God, and then somebody's going to come back and say, "But, but you need to listen too, right? You can't just talk without listening. Well, that's true, and it's not. Some say that We Some say that, and, and they make prayer and the listening part into some form of meditation exercise that has more in common with a pagan ritual than it does the Christian faith. You pray, and then you, you, you listen. And since you want to hear God speaking to you in some fashion, usually it's not audibly, but it is as if God speaks audibly. I mean, we could go on and on here, but the point, and I'll just summarize my point here, and that is this, that isn't how God speaks to us. God speaking to us isn't subjective. It's objective. God speaks to us through his word. In the Old Testament, he spoke to the prophets in the, to the prophets. He spoke to us through his word, and now he speaks to us through Jesus Christ. God speaks to us through his word. The spirit of God illuminates it. it. He helps us understand it. He helps us apply it. If you want to hear from God, listen to what he has said. There, there's a doctrine called the sufficiency of scripture. And the, the doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture is articulated in some fashion in about every simple doctrinal statement concerning Scripture that there is, any Orthodox one anyway. The problem is that some say they affirm the sufficiency of Scripture but actually deny it in practice. That's a problem with a lot of doctrine. The sufficiency of Scripture simply states that what we have in the Bible is enough for all faith and practice. For instance, there's a line from the USMB Confession of Faith that says this, we accept the Bible as the infallible Word of God and the authoritative guide for faith and practice. Now, well, I think that could be worded a little bit better. The point is very clear. The Bible is, whether one accepts it or not, is infallible, meaning it is trustworthy. And then you ask, why is it trustworthy? Because it's an errant. It means without mistake, incapable of making mistakes. It's trustworthy in all areas. In all areas of what? All faith, all practice. That's what our confession says. And then the question is, is, do we need more than that? No, we don't need more. The Bible is sufficient. God gave us what we need. We shouldn't long for more. If we needed more, the Bible would still be being written. My point here is simple. And that we are to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. And we do that by looking to his word. Not looking to other supernatural subjective experiences. Not subjective things. Not things that go beyond scripture but we recognize that Scripture is like a a mirror. And then when we look in it, we we see what is reflected, and we see Christ. Don Barnhouse tells a story of going to an amusement park and seeing one of those really long barrels, those barrels that are like eight feet high and 40 feet long. You know what I'm talking about? And they, they roll on their side. They spin. And... They, the purpose is people try to walk through it while well, it's spinning and it's really hard. So Barnhouse tried it. He was a few feet into the barrel and his feet got higher than the center of gravity and he fell. Then he tried; he couldn't get back up because the barrel was spinning. Maybe some of you have had that experience. The man that ran the ride stopped it. Barnhouse got out and Barnhouse said, okay, let's try that again. I think I can do it. And the man that controlled it said, wait a minute, you you should know something. There's a a trick through walking through the barrel. He said, do you see that mirror on the other end of the barrel? Barnhouse said that he did. And he asked him what he saw in the mirror. And Barnhouse said, well, I see you. I see the, the person that is controlling the ride. And the man said, that's right. You see me. So when you walk through it, forget about the barrel. Forget that the barrel is turning. Don't look at the barrel, but look into the mirror. That way, you have a true sense of vertical, and you will be able to adjust the speed of your steps to keep from falling. This time, Barnhouse followed that advice, and he made it through the barrel. The secret to walking through the barrel was to keep his eyes fixated on the the one who runs it. It's the same spiritually. Life is full of of ups and downs. There are joys and, and disappointments. Of course, that, that is a, a tremendous understatement, but how do we navigate all of that, right? How do you prepare? Who's in control of all the, the, of the ups and downs of, of life? Who runs the affairs of, of life? And the truth is that God runs the affairs of life. All of the disappointments, all of the joys, all of that. We also know that it is God who has all of that under control. So the Christian walks through life, and if he's going to do that without losing his footing, so to speak, he needs to keep his or her eyes fixated on Christ Jesus. William Carey, at the end of his life, makes much the same point in a different way. On his deathbed, he turned to a friend and said, when I'm gone, please don't talk about William Carey, but talk about William Carey's Savior. I desire that Christ alone might be magnified. In other words, don't, don't see me. See the person that's behind it all. Don't look to me to try to, to, to get through your life. Look to the one Who William Carey looked at to get through his. Let me just close here by trying to dispel one myth if I can. One might be tempted to think that with all of this talk about pointing to Jesus, acknowledging that we are nothing in a sense, acknowledging the the sovereignty of God, we might be tempted to think that the byproduct of humility that we've been talking about here is weakness. But in fact, Humility is being weak. And if you think that, you misunderstand humility. In fact, to humble oneself before God gives one great boldness in areas that really matter. For instance, uh, Moses was the the meekest man who ever lived, according to Numbers 12.3. He humbled himself before God by taking his shoes off at the burning bush. This was the the same man that walked into the court of the most powerful leader of the day and demanded on behalf of the Lord that he was to let God's people go. John Knox, great Scottish reformer, was approaching the the court of Bloody Mary. He was on his way to, to visit with her, and on his way, somebody grabbed his arm and said, don't go in there. Wait, she is in one of her moods. She is in a hostile mood, and everybody knew that visiting her in, a, in one of her angry moods was very dangerous. But Knox continued on his way to see her, and he said this, why should I be afraid of a queen when I've just spent four hours on my knees before God? I would say that Knox was genuinely humble knowing that he had bowed before God, and therefore, because of, that, because of that strength, he didn't have to fear the queen. True humility, when one's eyes are truly fixed on Christ, is characterized by great boldness, even in the face of danger, even in the face of hostility. Don't misunderstand humility. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we we come to you this morning and we thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to to gather together here and to to come and and to worship you. Lord, and I I pray that as we look at this portion of of your word to us where uh, John the Baptist is is talking to these disciples about how he's, he's losing favor with the people, how the people are, are turning and, and following Jesus. Lord, may our lives be like that. May we continually point others to the one who our eyes are fixed on. Lord, we pray that we would be so occupied in our lives, you know, in our heart with Christ Jesus, that we would truly be humble people people that, whose lives are characterized by great boldness because you're first and, and center in our life. Lord, we pray that you would use this text, use this word to accomplish that purpose, that you would do that and, and so much more. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.